0: Hi, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the United Citizens of Europe podcast. My name is Hannah.
1: And this is Luca. And today we're going to talk about EU sanctions imposed by the Foreign Affairs Council of the European Union on March 22nd. And later on, we're going to discuss um, EU-Myanmar relations with Sabrina Moles from China Files. So Hannah, today we're going to talk a bit about what EU sanctions are and what does it mean to be sanctioned by the European Union. And we want to talk about the commitment of the European Union on preserving uh, and protecting human rights in their international efforts.
0: So on March 22nd, the EU imposed restrictive measures on individuals and entities for human rights violations and abuses in China, North Korea, Libya, South Sudan, Eritrea, Russia, and Myanmar. So Luca, what does it mean to be sanctioned?
1: Okay, so the measures that the European Union can can take, um, as you said before, um, they either sanction uh, countries as a whole uh, or entities or specific people. Um, of course, the European Union tries not to sanction countries because sanctioning countries, again, one of the measures will be, for example, like freezing funds uh, or economic resources, restricting uh, some the, the entrance of people from a determined country or like again, uh, it will ban export or investments. So there are different types of, of sanctions. Uh, again, like the the European Union, just like many other countries, try not to use the uh, generic, let's say sanctioning which is sanctioning a country, because that would that mean um, that would mean actually sanctioning also people that are not involved in the in the situation, for example, when human rights are violated and uh, the central government is responsible for it. You don't want to make the situation worse for um, for the citizens. So, again, maybe you can talk a bit more about the um, why the European Union actually cares about human rights abroad as well.
0: Well, I think all of us kind of, you know, anyone who is kind of familiar with the EU has always known that or has always been told that human rights are kind of a central value of, and a core feature of the EU. And this has been the case for quite some time now, although... Actually, it wasn't until the Treaty of Amsterdam in 1997 that respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms became a founding principle of the EU. And then in 2000, we have the, the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. So human rights have been um, really a core part of the EU. But um, what's interesting is that with the Treaty of Maastricht, the, which established the EU's common foreign and security policy, it wasn't then until the Treaty of Nice of 2001 that human rights became a core part in the EU's external relations. So essentially the EU tried to kind of establish consistency between its um, internal rights and its external rights so that human rights would be at the core of both internal affairs and external affairs. So what the Treaty of Lisbon did was it really placed human rights at the center of the EU's foreign affairs and it essentially stated that any kind of action that the EU takes on the international scene shall be guided by the principles which inspired its own creation, which are of course human rights. And so essentially what this says is that it says that the EU must promote and protect human rights in all its internal affairs. So this is one of the reasons why of course um, the EU pursues sanctions and of course this is not the only um, kind of action that it will take to ensure that human rights are protected and promoted around the world, but this is this is no this is a negative instrument. So of course there are different instruments that the EU has to promote human rights, and um, the restrictive measures, the sanctions, are a negative instrument and are really try used by the EU to maintain and restore international peace and security. And um, in this way, they try to, yeah, they try to get countries to comply with uh, with human rights and um, to hold those accountable and those responsible for human rights violations.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, let's also remember that the restrictive measures were on 11 individuals and for entities. And by entities, of course, we also mean um, companies that are... Related to central government or people working for the central government. Um, yeah. So,
0: in the case of Myanmar, it was those responsible for the for the military coup on February first, yeah. and um, afterwards, in all the the oppression of the protesters.
1: Again, we already talked uh, last week about what happened in China and also how China reacted to the. Uh, sanctions imposed by the European uh, Union, which, again, was uh, tit for tat. So um, the European Union sanctioned, so China sanctioned back and also came up with um with a report that basically expressed its anger and disbelief on European Union, like manifesting disinterest in um, other countries' human rights when in EU's member states, human rights are uh, sometimes violated. So it was also like an interesting response.
0: But this is something that is characteristic of many, many countries like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. They and just uh, try
0: to avoid any scrutiny of their own human rights record.
1: Okay. And now we're going to talk about what's going on in Myanmar and EU Myanmar relations with Sabrina Morris. Hi, Sabrina. And thanks Hi. for being here. Can you tell us a bit about you?
2: Okay, I will be very short, <laughs> very brief. Uh, and Sabrina, I recently graduated with a double degree in international relations with the University of Turin, the Italian mm-hmm. part, and the Beijing Foreign Studies University for China.
0: Okay, so that's...
2: by now I'm part of the editorial team of China Files platform you already know, <laughs> which is covering Asia for an Italian speaking audience. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I also do many little jobs. I'm a part of a volunteering association, the Anji, which is uh, an association for young Chinese people trying to help the Chinese community there, especially in the Piedmont
1: region. It's really interesting. Well, today, fortunately, you're not going to talk about China, <laughs> but you're going to talk about um, Myanmar. Can you tell us a bit about what's going on in that country?
2: Sure. So since the 1st of February, the military junta, which actually shares, the was sharing the power with the civil government, took the power in a military coup. Basically, their claims is because uh, in November there were held the general elections in the country, and after that the civil government gained much more power. It was evident that the National League of Democracy, which is the majority party. In the country was gaining more seats, and uh, after that, the, this is the reason why the military junta uh, decided in the first of February, to say that the elections were fake, there was no reason to uh, admit that the National League of Democracy won so many seats in the government, and after that, they decided to just take the power. So, basically, the military junta, which is led by the army of Myanmar, which the name is Tatmadaw, is now the leading power in the country.
1: But why, why is this happening? Like, why, like, how is it possible as well?
2: Actually, this is partially possible because since 2008, with the new constitution, a new kind of government shared between the army and the civil government was elected. So after that, they built some institutions that increasingly became more uh, similar, like a parliamentary republic. But in fact, a part of the seats are still concealed to the military junta. The army in Myanmar has now actually the right to have some power in the country. And on the other part, the civil government as well has its military party, which is the USDP, which also can claim some seats in the government. Basically the army now claims that, yeah, basically the elections were fake, they have to take, uh, so they have to establish a new government. The problem is that there is no, um, there is no sign that new elections will be held, for example. So now the problem is that uh, actually the tatmadaw gained the power and is not likely to um, to compromise with the civil government they they both share a kind of similar equal power in the country but now since the tatmadaw took the power is not um, we can say they are going to uh, rebuild the old institution that is why also the population is rising because actually mm-hmm. they are basically uh, Going against the the state they have been building in the last ten years.
1: You talked a bit about the role of the junta in uh, in Myanmar, but this is also like not the first time that this happens in uh, in the country. Um, I mean, also like the name Myanmar uh, was not the original, let's say, name of the of this country.
2: Yes, actually, um, starting from the past. Uh, before the new government was established in the last few years actually there was a authoritarian government led by the tatmadaw and the tatmadaw has already used the force against the uh, the citizens to impose to impose the power on the country the fact that they changed the name is quite significant i think because um they after the independence of myanmar the military junta, there were already many, uh, many clashes between the citizens and the army, and in the end, eventually, uh, the army took their power. Until now, Myanmar is still under a 70-year-old uh, civil war because many minorities did not accept the ceasefires. And the last one was in 2015, a universal ceasefire, national-level ceasefire, but there are still... Many parts, many um, groups he said the country would didn't accept it, mm-hmm. so mm, just saying uh, Myanmar has a very uh, difficult history, very troubled history, <laughs> so to say, especially regarding these uh, uh, legal or non legal very gray zones who has the power in the whole country. yeah, talking about the name of myanmar, uh, this is has to do with the power in the country both with the army and both with the civil government. It was actually the change from Burma, which was which was the name given by the Great Britain colonists, to Myanmar, which has um, a more like natural sounding, like the Burmese, Burmese languages is more like, would more like say Myanmar rather than Burma, which was named after... Uh, the English, uh, England basically, couldn't say it better, naming it Burma. But however, the meaning of the name is basically the same, and it represents the may, uh, the ethnic majority in the country, which are the mm, the Bamar. Also, the, the even Hansen Sen Chi, which was the leader de facto of the civil government, she's uh, she's a Bamar. That is to say that the who has the power in Myanmar has always been quite related with the uh, Bamar majority. That is why the minorities have also a difficult role to play here. And it's also very interesting regarding what is happening now in Myanmar. Because since the military junta took the power, also the minority rise, but in favor of the civil government, because um, actually the army, has had a more a more difficult relationship with the minorities, which have their own armies as well.
1: Uh, let's let's talk about what what's going on now. Um, as a result of this new coup, uh, a lot of protests arose, as you said before, and they're being suppressed with uh, with force. Last weekend, the 27th and 28th of March, around 100 people were killed.
2: Uh, last weekend was probably the bloodiest one after the military junta took the power. And now we count, probably, they say more than 500, but probably there is more victims from the clashes between the protesters and the, and the army in Myanmar. And that is basically because the army is using violence against the protesters. Actually, they started with a Pacific protest, and it still is. The citizen rise because they didn't not, didn't accept the fact that the military junta is in charge now of the state. They don't want to be suppressed again, especially because um, they, they saw a kind of changes in a better way in Myanmar with the civil government. As I just said, not all the citizens in Myanmar were so um, favorable to the civil government because it's really representative of the Bamar ethnic majority. However... The fact that the military is now in power um, is a big threat to democracy and the stability of the country. Therefore, the citizens are starting protesting. It's already two months. And it's not only just common people trying to march in the streets or staying up by night just in silence to um, show they are not favorable to the army being in power now. There are also civil servants who are striking since the beginning of the military coup, or there are also doctors, nurses, who refuse to work in military led hospitals. So there is also this part of the mobilization, and this mobilization is interesting because um, all citizens are quite Mm united. The role of social media is also significant this time, because social media are helping people to organize, to share information, to share also techniques how to respond because the army now is uh, the violence has escalated so far that the army is using a warlike tactics against the protesters.
1: This thing of social media helping uh, protesters to gather and um, basically escape the like totalitarian um, state-controlled media is something interesting that we can see in different and different countries. Um, I wanted to just maybe draw um, a parallelism with the uh, thailand a couple of months ago the situation in thailand was very similar where um, the in that case the the king was abusing his power can we can we also draw some parallelisms because yeah. i remember that there were like protests that were being suppressed but and some people were getting jailed for literally no reasons sort or of. some some people like younger than us, they were like in their 20s, like university students, because that was the main uh, group that was protesting. They were university students, right?
2: Yes, it is. There are strong parallelism between the two countries. Uh, however, in Thailand, they're also um, starting using violence against people, protesting against especially the the king, because the problem in Thailand is also not only the king, but it's still also the actual prime minister with leading the army. And he is also using, he's abusing his power towards towards Thailand. Yeah. There is a strong parallelism to to the young age of the protesters, as you said. Uh, the techniques they're using social media to yeah. to organize, to gather, to uh, share knowledge, also to yeah. share know-how, how to defend themselves from the the actions of the army. And also, yeah. I think they also share this kind of vision towards a more pro-democracy, like pro-democracy, like-minded groups. Also, in Thailand, it's more than one year that people is money and is protesting against the um, against who is in charge, against the establishment, because basically, I think they are more, they're younger, they're more exposed to what is happening also outside of their yeah. country. They have been also inspired by other movements, by other thoughts, by other yeah. values, which are very different when they compare to their country. And it's really interesting to say how these things are evolving. There are many analysts say, saying there is pro-democracy movements in Southeast Asia as some kind of new spring, Southeast Asia spring, mm-hmm. because all these young people is mm, sharing also basically the same values. And they're using the same way to react.
1: Something that I loved about um, the protests in in Thailand were also that they were using the uh, the Hunger Games salute to protest. And
2: this and is in was... Myanmar.
1: Also in this... Myanmar. Yes. Oh, this is yes. this is amazing. I mean, you can see that literally, like, I mean, really, life imitates heart. <laughs> and uh, yes, and it, and you can see also like the the age range of the protesters, uh, of the main protesters, let's say and um and as you said it's really it's really interesting and important the fact that they're using social media and there also the fact that their social media is not being censored or banned because that's still like a way for them to again escape um fully uh the regime so it's it's really interesting um but i have to say like as far as i know the european union did not comment on the situation of thailand mm-hmm. but i'm not 100% sure but on March 22nd, the European Union issued like different sanctions uh, to different countries. Last week, we talked about China. And this week, let's talk, talk about Myanmar. So do you think these sanctions can be of any help?
2: Oh, <laughs> trying to say about yeah, Europe and sanctions, I think like a case like Myanmar especially, I think is one of the worst headaches for diplomats and foreign policy experts. Because Myanmar... Um, on the contrary of China, Myanmar is still a quite poor country. People that are still struggling, they have a very low life, low quality of life. So the problem with sanction is still that the, Euro, uh, the European Union is trying their best, of course, to target the military junta, to target their interests and their assets. Uh, the problem is still that... Uh, um, you can always find some areas, some gray areas, that can also undermine the stability of um, uh, common people. Common mm-hmm. people even or even the, um, how to say, uh, or even the civil government. Yeah. Reducing, of course, the economic stability of Myanmar can be both a threat and an opportunity, of course, because it can force the military junta to deal... To find a way to be engaged more with their partners abroad, and to find a solution to build a more, um, a more democratic government. However, by now, since the junta is using the violence against people protesting peacefully, now uh, many raids, even air, even using bombings by air, have started again in some. Marginal areas in the country. That is, that is to say, it really, mm, it really can start again the civil war as it was before 2008, before the ceasefire. The civil war inside the country. So the situation is very, very dangerous. But I think there are very, very difficult to understand gray zones. Just to have a notable example about what we are doing here in Italy. In Italy, there are a group of NGOs and also the Italian chapter of Amnesty International, which are trying to investigate the fact that there are some Italian bullets which the Protestants found in Myanmar. However, it's a long time and in 2010, the European Union uh, stated it again, there's an army embargo to Myanmar. So it's basically against the law. Mm -hmm. However, in this case, it probably involves a third party who sold these bullets. Actually, there are also bullets not to kill people, basically they are doing for hunting. Mm. So there is also this fact that you cannot classify this kind of weapons as weapons to kill people, but you know when the civil war starts, when this kind of situation starts, every weapon can be used. Uh, This is one problem. And the second problem is if there is a third party doing the, how to say, doing the dirt job Mm -hmm. for you, this can be a problem. And that is why many uh, foreign policy experts always claim that more than sanctions, it will be important that multilateral cooperation could be involved in this case to to try to engage the country. The European Union has always tried, has always tried to uh, relate to Myanmar not as um, enemies, they, uh, but more like a country they can engage. Mm-hmm. And this car, uh, this may lead us to another point, a very interesting point about multilateralism in these cases because uh, the European Union is having so much confidence, so much faith in uh, ASEAN to do something. Uh, But ASEAN, by now, is still not doing anything about this. And Myanmar is a part of the ASEAN, so this should be more a problem of this association rather than Europe.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, but like, let's also say that kind of like the beginning of the European Union, like uh, ASEAN is also like a economic community. So and this is something that literally is the main difference between these other regional organizations and the European Union is that now European Union has more or less the power to work on social and political issues. Whereas ASEAN or like the ECOWAS in Africa or like different or MERCOSUR they're not 100% on social issues and sometimes actually like um, they are not even allowed to talk about any social political issues in their um, meetings unless that affects uh, economies.
2: I completely agree with you because I think the European Union placed so many high expectations in such a young association Mm -hmm. of countries Which is basically based on economic ties, as you said. And regarding political or social issues, they are more like they have an agreement not to disagree, so to say. <laughs> no, no one has. They have to have like some sort of stability in yeah. like the association about these
1: topics. So. Yeah, uh, I mean, basically, again, it's just to uh, to have like political stability or and social stability, so that. The economy is not affected. That's the the, the only basically social political uh, agreement that they have. But yeah, that's uh, ASEAN will be a really good and interesting organization if they would have the the power to do something. But again, what what else could the international community and the European Union do to help?
2: Uh, that is quite a problem. <laughs> yes, actually, by now they sanction it in an economic level, as we said, targeting the Tatmadaw. Uh, on the other hand, as I said, I think multilateral cooperation could, be, could do the trick. And in the end, not, I, I just mentioned it as the end, but now the biggest player we have is the United Nations. So uh, one of the main problems now is that the United Nations uh, um, Security Council is led also by other countries like China and Russia, which are basically not so... They do not like to be involved in in a discussion that involves uh, human rights and social and abuse of power by an authoritarian government. So, actually, I just read that the Security Council, after two days, they finally decided to, uh, to accuse, to condemn the coup. But this is just a statement. It can be a first step, Towards a kind of new policies, trying to engage at a multilateral level, the Myanmar gov- government—I <laughs> uh, will say this—military junta power. However, we will have to see because by now, China still um, is still um, how to say is still posing more attention on the fact that um, the coup is undermining the stability of Myanmar country, of course, and, of course, of the neighboring countries. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: the Stability. Another fact is saying the coup is uh, an abuse of power by an authoritarian government which is violating human rights. China will never say that in an official statement. So they are still trying to separate these issues and find their own third way to... To talk with the junta and um, try to solve this problem.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to end with uh, with another comment. I would love the United Nations, as you were saying, that you know the um, the situation in Myanmar. Some countries will never recognize it as um, as a problem of abuse of power and human rights violation, but more of um uh, an issue that causes instability in the region. The United Nations actually issued a statement saying um, asking for the neighboring countries to please accept as many Myanmar refugees as possible.
2: I think this is a very big issue because uh, I'm also reading that China is trying to close its borders with Myanmar and try to securitize the area because it's important to say that um, uh, the part of the borders of Myanmar with China is part of a very big project for an oil conduct. Mm-hmm. to help China avoid the so-called Malacca dilemma to get more, more oil from outside country to buy more oil without having problems of transportation. And also uh, in this area, there is one of the most uh, uh, unstable areas because it's still very much controlled by the minority, by one of the minority, one of the many minorities' armies And it's one of the more unstable places. So this is also like to recreate a problem. Some refugees are already fleeing to Thailand. Because as I said, especially in the area occupied by the current minority, they started to do airstrikes on the population to bombing also civilians, also villages. Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, it's like a kind of revenge towards the army that started uh, the current army. that was starting to fight against the Tatmadaw. And also there are people fleeing to India, but also India um, is still having a quite ambivalent position on it. And I'm afraid they will start to trying to do something about this, uh, this issue, but it cannot be... Um, but it can also be not accepting the refugees anymore but now there are many refugees fleeing to india and most of them are from uh, the army or the police oh. so since si- yeah, since they are uh, defeating they are <laughs> defeating the army or the police the security forces of myanmar of course they have to escape from the country and try not to be found so it will be important also to see how India will deal with the situation when it will be the time that the Tatmadaw will ask about that. But oh. now they are just doing a lot of incursion along the borders, trying to uh, repress the civilians and the um, pro-democracy movement. So it's not yet to, it's still early to, to see what will happen there just feel a very dramatic
1: situation. That's a very pressing issue. I'm I'm happy that we we covered uh, this, and really thank you for um, for being our guest this week.
2: Thank you very much, Luca.